Why? Saw some pictures recently of some pretty epic face plants, and I thought I would start by showing a couple of them to you. Uh, this first one is on a baseball field, and um, if this if this boy's team won the game, uh, his face definitely still lost the battle. Like that does not that does not look good. Uh, the next one uh, shows why I never got into skateboarding. Uh, concrete is pretty unforgiving. So that that looks pretty nasty. The next one uh, is uh, a spot I don't think I'd ever anticipated seeing a face plant, and that is the Oval Office. This boy, uh, he was with his parents uh, back when Barack Obama was president. He visited, and he was being uh, a little boy and doing what little boys do, and so he ended up face planting on Obama's couch, and I think that's a pretty cool claim to fame right, right there. Um, and if you're a parent, you know, thinking about this kid, if you're a parent or you've been a parent, with babies or toddlers that are learning to walk or learning how to crawl, you've probably seen your fair share of face plants because little kids, they get really excited about their new abilities, but they don't have experience, they don't have the strength, and so pretty soon they're off balance, they can trip over their own feet, and sometimes their heads are just so big and they get out over their feet and they, they just bite it. They just go go down like this poor little guy here. Um, we've got another uh, cute cute little girl who face planted. And when babies face plant, uh, it's pretty cute. But the reason I'm showing you these pictures is because the same thing can happen to us spiritually. The same thing can happen to us spiritually, especially with young believers who are just learning to walk with the Lord. And that is exactly what happened to old father Abraham in today's passage. But one key difference is his face plant was not cute. It wasn't cute. It was actually pretty serious. And so to see that in the text, we're going to break it into two main points. We're going to look at Abraham's face plant and God's faithfulness. Abraham's face plant and God's faithfulness. For our first point, listen again to verse 10. There was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. If you were reading through Genesis for the very first time, you would never expect verse 10 after verses 1 through 9. Genesis 1 through 9, which we studied last week, is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible for at least two reasons. And the first reason is that the promises that God gave to Abraham in that section, they formed the foundation of the gospel to such a deep extent that as Schreiner pointed out last week, Galatians 3 says that God actually preached the gospel ahead of time to Abraham through them. Now those promises that God gave to Abraham included three key components that are repeated over and over again throughout the rest of Genesis and throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The first is that Abraham was promised innumerable descendants. God promised to turn this childless man with a barren wife into the father of a great nation. The second promise was the land of Canaan. Abraham initially set out, trusting God, not knowing where he was going, but when he arrived in Canaan, in verse 7, God appeared to him again and promised him that, that his offspring were going to possess that land forever. The third blessing is the blessing of all the nations. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing, and his offspring, God said, were going to bless all of humanity. Now, these three promises, they're all fully and finally fulfilled only through Jesus Christ in the new covenant. But I'm sharing with them with you now because they're important to keep in mind. They're a backdrop that if you forget, if you don't, Keep, take them into account. It's going to be hard to make sense of our passage today. So Genesis 12, it introduced us to some very important promises. 
but it's also important because of the example of faith that we're given in Abraham. Last week we saw that Abraham was an unimpressive man living in a pagan land and family, apparently an idol worshiper himself. And again, his wife was barren. She was childless. Now, I want you to put yourself for just a moment in Abraham's shoes. Now, Abraham, everyone around him is worshiping the moon god or other idols. He probably doesn't have a single example in his life of someone who is godly and walking by faith. And then God somehow appears to him and tells him to leave it all, to leave his, his country, to leave his relatives and follow him to a land that he doesn't even specify. There's no indication that, that God gave this vision, gave this word to anyone else. It's not like Sarah heard it or his father heard it. And so what I want you to see is that all Abraham had to work with were the promises of God's word. That's all that he had. And what did he do? Verse 4, so Abraham went. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Abraham followed God. And his initial step of, of faith was incredible. And it's been an example and a challenge to all believers ever since. Scripture regularly points back to it. However, even though Abraham's initial response to God's call was excellent, his faith at this point was far from mature. And our passage is going to show that his young faith is being tested. Think about it this way. After Abraham's dramatic first step of faith and obedience to God at the start of chapter 12, what does he have to show for it physically? At this point, Abraham is still childless, the land that God promised him was already full of idol worshipers, and he didn't own a square foot of it. And at this point, he has approximately zero influence on the nations. Wouldn't that test your faith? This dramatic sacrifice that he makes, and so far he has nothing to show for it. Now, some of you here, you can probably relate to that even recently. You've made big sacrifices to trust God, to try and follow God, but you have serious trials in your life right now. It might be financial trials or health trials, relational difficulties or conflict, big disappointment with ministry. Abraham, he's being tested by these factors that I just pointed out. And on top of all of them, the land that he'd been promised by God, this great land that God said he was going to give to Abraham, there's a severe famine in it. There's a famine in the promised land. Because of this intense famine, Abraham decided to go to Egypt for relief. And it's important to point out this, this wasn't an abandonment of God's promises. If he wanted to do that, he could have gone back to his, his hometown of Ur. But at the same time, there's every indication in this section that Abraham is beginning to operate by fear instead of by faith. Now, I say that because Abraham, he leaves Canaan just a couple of short verses after we learn that God is promising that land to him. So that, that should give us a little bit of concern. And then even more alarming is that there's no mention that Abraham prayed or sought God's direction about going to Egypt. It talks about him calling on the Lord when he was in Canaan. After this passage, once he goes back to the promised land, it talks about him calling on the Lord, seeking the Lord, but there's no mention of it at all in this passage, that Abraham is being moved by faith instead of by fear, that becomes very evident, more explicit when we get to verses 11 through 13. Verse 11 says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, 
look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Let's stop there for a moment. So far, this is a good interaction between a husband and wife. Like, this is so far so good, Abraham. This is really good. Sarah might have been thinking to himself, herself, oh, oh, Abe, you know, you're so romantic. You know, it's not even Valentine's Day. I was, I was always hoping you would, you would talk to me like that. Now, Abraham, he should, have just, he should have just stopped there, but unfortunately he goes on and he says, when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. They'll kill me because, they'll kill me, but let you live. Please say you're my sister so it will go well for me because of you and my life will be spared on your account. I wonder what Sarah's thinking now. <laughs> wow, thanks, Abe, you pathetic coward. <laughs> like, you are, you're a big wuss. And I wouldn't blame her if she thought that. You're not going to find this in any marriage counseling material. Like, this is bad. This is bad family leadership here. And Abraham, he, he might have justified this plan by telling himself that God had made the promise to bless the whole world through him. God hadn't specifically said anything about Sarah. So maybe Abraham is, is selfishly thinking to himself, well, Sarah's expendable. I'm not. That's one possibility here. There's another less sinister option, though, and that is that Abraham's strategy was simply meant to protect him and buy the family time until the family ended and that he never planned to let Sarah be married to another man. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. At that time, brothers became the legal guardians of their sisters if the the father died, and that was especially true when it came to to social obligations involving the arrangement and, and negotiation of marriage, and that could take considerable amounts of time. You can see an example of that even in, in Genesis chapter 25 with, with Laban and Isaac. And so some commentators think that Abraham's plan was actually quite ingenious, especially when you factor in that in chapter 20, we find out that Sarah actually is his half-sister. So Sarah's his half-sister through his father, which was common practice in the, the hometown that Abraham and Sarah are from. And so Abraham could have told himself that he's not actually lying, even though it was an obvious half-truth that was meant to deceive. Now, this plan, it likely would have worked because if anyone was interested in Sarah, Abraham could just delay the premarriage process as long as possible, hoping for the famine to end, and then pack up and move away secretly before the wedding. If that, if that was Abraham's plan, he may have felt pretty proud of himself, for his cunning strategy. But we know that, that there is at least two really big problems with it. The first problem is that it was a complete moral failure. Now, his strategy wasn't one inspired by faith, but one completely dominated by fear and cowardice. Not only was he willing to misrepresent God through his deception, but he was willing to at least potentially put his wife in harm's way to protect his own life. Or his own life. He essentially is telling Sarah, my life over yours. My life is more important than yours. Now, there is no way to justify what Abraham did here. But at the same time, every believer, we can relate to various degrees with the temptation to be motivated by fear and by selfishness instead of by faith. Based on conversations that, that I've had in the last couple of weeks with believers in our church, I, I made a list of, of some of the areas of fear that came up. There's fear about what God's will is for a student after they graduate. 
There's fear from a single person about never getting married and dying alone. There's fear about not being able to pay the bills. There's fear of change, fear of being rejected by friends, fear of being a first-time parent, fear of sharing the gospel, fear of failing health and death, fear of, of wasting one's life, and the fear that God is still angry at me and against me. And we could spend the rest of this morning going, and really the rest of this day, just going around to each person here and hearing the fears in your life. Now, don't worry. We're not going to make you share your fears with everyone here this morning. But I, what I do want you to do is take a moment, and I want you to try and pinpoint the one or two biggest fears in your life that often end up motivating you instead of faith. You know, for me, one of my biggest fears is the fear of failure, especially involving things that are really important to me. I was thinking about this recently. An area I've seen that impact me is in my parenting. See, I really want my kids to follow Christ. I want them to love Christ. But as they get older, I can see the patterns of their sin more clearly. I can see some of their bad habits. And especially when those bad habits and sin, when they're mine, when I see mine reflected in them, that's when I, I usually kind of sense that fear the most. Like, oh, that's not going to end well. <laughs> I'm not excited for where that might be taking you. And when I'm parenting by fear, it leads me to be much more critical. It leads me to be much more impatient. I, I can start to kind of micromanage my kids because I, I start to fail to see that God loves my kids more than I do, that ultimately they need him more than me, that I can't save <laughs> my kids. I just need to point them to God. And so when I'm parenting by fear instead of out of faith in God, it, it changes the whole relational climate of my house. It changes my interaction with my kids. Now, I hope that you can identify at least one, hopefully a couple of areas in your own life where the same thing can happen, where instead of trusting God, you, you get off the tracks. You begin to be moved by fear instead. What this passage shows us and what you have to understand about a life of faith is that fear is one of the greatest enemies of it. Fear is one of the greatest enemies to living a life of faith. God had given Abraham incredible promises that clearly implied he didn't need to be and should not be afraid of anyone. God had told him in verse 3, he says, if, if anyone treats you with contempt, God says, I will curse them. Anyone who treats you with contempt. And trying to murder Abraham, that fear of being murdered, that would definitely fall under that category. So Abraham, he, he had these amazing promises from God. And yet in this section, he's acting as if God and his promises are not even part of the equation. And that's what faith, and that's what fear does. That's what fear does in the life of a believer. It makes us live like non-Christians. It makes us live as if God didn't exist and that everything is on us. And so the first problem with Abe's plan is that it was motivated by fear. The second problem with Abraham's plan was Pharaoh. It was Pharaoh. You see, an average Egyptian man would be happy to, to work with Abraham to negotiate a marriage with beautiful Sarah. But if that was Abraham's plan, he failed to factor in that Pharaoh wasn't an average Egyptian. See, Pharaoh didn't need to ask her to negotiate. He could just take any unmarried woman he wanted for himself. And that's exactly what happened in verse 15 when some of Pharaoh's officials saw the beauty of Sarah and then told Pharaoh about it. 
He went and he didn't ask, he took Sarah for his wife. Now, if you're not familiar with the, the customs of ancient kings at this time, uh, it's important that you don't have this image in your mind of a pharaoh just longing for his one and only love, you know, with a purity ring on, just waiting for true love to strike before he got married. That's not what's happening here. What's happening is that Sarah is being added to his royal harem. And so there were probably hundreds of other women in it. And so her fate at this point, as she's brought in to, the, to Pharaoh's household, her fate is to live the rest of her life as a pampered member in Pharaoh's house, always ready to be summoned to his bed whenever he desired her. That's what's happening here. I think when you realize that, it brings up a couple of, a couple of questions that I think are a little bit disturbing to kind of think, think through and, and process. And the first is, did God show approval of Abraham's cowardly plan by blessing him with great riches in verse 16? See, right after Abraham treated Sarah disgracefully, we're told Pharaoh treated Abraham well because of her, and Abraham acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. So as Sarah's endangered, Abraham is enriched. How do we make sense of that? Well, God did promise to bless Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3. And we saw last week that 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 involves material blessing. And some think that God is just being gracious to Abraham and fulfilling that promise, even though Abraham clearly doesn't deserve it. Now, all of us who are Christians, we can testify that, that God has often blessed our life, despite times where we've given into sin and clearly not deserved it. And so that may be a part of what is happening here. However, even though God was going to bless Abraham materially, he promised to do that. I think there are a number of reasons to view these specific gifts from Pharaoh not as a blessing, but as a stumbling block. The first reason for that is that in the very next section we're going to read next week, these riches that Abraham acquired, they lead to his conflict with Lot over where, where their flocks graze. And so it led to them separating. And that's what, that's what drove Lot to live in the wicked city of Sodom. That was the catalyst for Lot ending up in Sodom. Second, in chapter 14, Abraham is offered great plunder by another pagan king after battle. And do you remember what Abraham does? He refuses it. And the reason, he says, is that I want it to be clear that no man has enriched me but God. And that seems like a lesson that Abraham needed to learn in Egypt. The most dramatic example to me is that in chapter 16, Abraham, he makes a hot mess of his family life by trying to have a son with Hagar. He tries to help God out to fulfill his promise. And you know where Hagar is from? Egypt. Moses specifically says that she was a slave from Egypt, which I think is reminding us of this account. Riches are not an automatic indication of God's blessing. And there are times that they can be more of a stumbling block than a blessing. And that is especially true when they're obtained in sinful ways. So that that information has helped me just processing through what, what's happening here in this exchange between Abraham and Sarah and Pharaoh. The second troubling question, though, for me is what happened to Sarah while she was in Pharaoh's household? I bet some of you have, have probably wondered about that. Specifically, did Abraham's sin result in Sarah spending the night in Pharaoh's bed? That question, it leads us to our second main point, and that's God's faithfulness. 
God's faithfulness. Listen to verses 17 through 20. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So I took her as my wife. Now here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. Abraham failed miserably, but God still acted faithfully, both to Abraham and to Sarah. Now, some teach that that Pharaoh did sleep with Sarah while she was in his household, but the more I've studied this passage, the more I'm convinced that he did not. First, when it says she was taken into Pharaoh's household, those words, they don't refer to consummation, they refer to the marriage process. And in the book of Esther, we get a description of another ancient ruler's harem. And there, it took a full year of beauty treatments before one of the women would be brought to the king. Now, it may not have taken that long in Egypt, but I imagine there was a, like, there was a, a preparation process there as well. Second, Genesis is not a prudish book. It's not a, afraid of explicitly commenting about sexual sin. And one example of that is in Genesis chapter 38 when you see Judah and his interaction with Tamar. It's a really extreme example, and the Bible is not afraid to explain exactly what is happening. Third, Abraham and Sarah, this is a little bit wild, but they try to pull the same stunt again in chapter 20. And there, it clearly says that even though Sarai ended up in another king's harem, that God protected her, that nothing happened to her in terms of sexual intimacy there. And it seems that Moses expects us to assume that that God would, of course, have done the same thing here in this first account. And so I've become convinced that God protected Sarah in that way. But the question is, how did he do it? How did that happen? And what we see is that God, he supernaturally sent a severe plague. He sent a, a plague, which is the same word used of the 10 plagues of the Exodus story, it's also the word used of the skin diseases in the law of Moses. So Pharaoh's house, it was struck with a severe plague, probably an awful skin disease, and that would have included his entire harem. It said it struck everyone in his household, but not Sarah. Well, it doesn't say that. I think it's implied in the text because over and over again, Moses refers to, Abra- or Moses refers to Sarah as Abraham's wife. It's his wife, even though... Abraham was denying it. He's afraid to admit it. He was deceiving Pharaoh. God says over and over again, no, no. Sarah's Abraham's wife, not Pharaoh's. She wasn't a part of of Pharaoh's household. And so she was likely the only one spared from the plague and could have told Pharaoh why she was being protected. This plague is a dramatic fulfillment of that verse that I mentioned earlier, that promise that God gave to Abraham that he would curse anyone who treated him with contempt. That that promise, it even applied to Pharaoh, who was not intentionally trying to, to show contempt to Abraham, but really was by taking his wife for his own. Now, it's interesting to me the way that Moses frames Abraham's guilt at the end of this passage. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but rather than comment on it directly, I think it's actually more pointed what he does. He condemns Abraham's actions through the mouth of a pagan ruler. So Pharaoh asked the same question 
that God did to Adam and Eve in the garden. What have you done? What have you done, Abraham? Ironically, Pharaoh shows more moral clarity than the father of faith. And Abraham is so clearly in the wrong that he can offer no defense to Pharaoh. He's speechless before Pharaoh. And so the scene ends with Abraham being forced out of Egypt in shame and in silence. Abraham had been called by God to be a blessing to all the nations, but he wasn't yet. Instead, he brought a curse onto the nation of Egypt. Now, as we pull all that together, as we think about all, all that we've looked at in this initially bizarre passage, what does God want to teach us from it? What's the big idea here? Well, I think it, it's clearly that our failures never prevent the fulfillment of God's promises. Our failures, even as God's people, they never prevent the fulfillment of God's promises. Think again about those three key promises to Abraham. God had promised to give Abraham land, offspring, and to make him a blessing to the nations. But what did we see Abraham just do? He abandoned the promised land. He endangered the, the wife who was to bear the offspring of promise, and he dishonored God and brought a curse to the nation of Egypt that he was staying in. Abraham was 0 for 3. He was 0 for 3 in a big way. And so if this is not a spiritual face plant, I don't know what is. However, despite Abraham's faltering faith, sin, and failure, despite all of that, we see that God was not out of control for a single moment. He wasn't out of control for a second. And he intervened to make sure that his promises to Abraham would be fulfilled. This, this passage is a really powerful illustration of the, the famous promise in Romans 8.28. It says that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. This doesn't say that, that everything is good and that everything works out for the good of every single person. It says we know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, for the people who have submitted to him in faith who've come to Christ, God is working everything that happens for their good. And if that's true, then that includes not just the sin of other people towards us, it also means that God can take our sin and our failures and still bring good out of it. I'm so thankful for, for how raw and consistent the Bible is in documenting the sin and, and failures of the heroes of faith like we see here with Abraham. And for one reason, I love that because it it's just one of the countless evidences that show the trustworthiness and the reliability of the Bible. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're under the impression that people just created the Bible, they just invented the religion, I, I would encourage you to think through if you were coming up with a religion, if you were trying to convince people to, to follow you, would you start by taking the major characters of your religion and showing all of their failures? showing them face plant over and over again, I don't think anyone would do that. And so again, it points to the, the reliability, the truthfulness of God's word. I also love this because it confirms the main message of the Bible, that the very best human beings are so sinful and so broken that they have no hope of saving themselves. And that's true even of Abraham, the father of faith. Abraham was once a pagan idol worshiper, and even after he began to follow God, 
You see him so scared here that he risked his wife's life to protect his own. This passage alone should be enough to convince everyone that you can't argue that Abraham was righteous enough to deserve salvation. There's no way. Abraham deserved God's wrath and judgment, just like the rest of us. And that's why Jesus Christ went to the cross. That's why Jesus Christ went to the cross. Jesus is God, which means he's objectively more important than both you and me. But rather than avoiding danger and death like Abraham did, hiding behind his wife, Jesus Christ freely went to the cross to die for our sin, including each and every time that we've given into fear in the past and each and every time we'll give into fear in the future. The, the image in my mind, what I want you to picture is Abraham pushing Sarah in front of him like a coward and Jesus Christ, the contrast to that, stepping forward in front of us and spreading out his arms, willing to die on the cross for our sins so that anyone who would repent and put their faith in him can be saved. Abraham told Sarah, my life over yours. My life is more important than yours. And Jesus Christ on the cross in humility considered us more important than him. He would lay down his, his life for us so that all who believe can be forgiven and have a relationship with him. That is the incredible heart of the God of Abraham. He loves to save sinners. And just like he was faithful to the promises that he gave to Abraham, he now promises to save anyone who will turn to Christ in faith, regardless of how spectacularly they have failed in the past before coming to know him, and regardless of how spectacularly they fail in the future, even after trusting him. Isn't that good news? <laughs> if you're a Christian, that is really, really good news, that our biggest failures will never invalidate or prevent God's promises from being fulfilled. Now, we're going to see next week, some of you, I know what you're thinking, we're going to see next week that there are major consequences in Abraham's life and in the weeks to come because of this sin. And there will be in our lives still as believers. But what this passage is teaching us, what, what I'm saying is that if and when we fail, as believers, we can still have great confidence, hope, and rest in the unconditional promises of God. Before we close, let's consider a couple of ways that we can practically apply this passage to our lives. The first is to be wary of fear and engage it with faith. We need to be wary of, of fear and engage it with faith. Since fear is one of the greatest enemies to a life of faith, we can't let it drive our lives, but we also can't ignore it. We need to instead see it as an opportunity to exercise and grow in faith. Let me suggest a, a helpful conviction here. There's something I've, I've tried to do. What I'd encourage you to do is, by God's grace, fight to never make any decisions, especially big decisions, these conscious, big choices you have to make. Fight to never make any big decisions based on fear until you have gotten clarity from God. See, when we're afraid or when we're in an uncomfortable situation, there's an instinctive desire that we have to get out of that situation as soon as possible, to get out of the pain, to get out of the discomfort, to alleviate the fear. But, but when we operate that way, when we're just trying to figure out what's the quickest way I can change my circumstances, then it's very easy for us to begin to, to operate like Abraham and completely fail to factor God into the equation. But we, we forget that God is working in every situation, in us 
and he wants to, to work through us as well. Think for a moment just about all the unnecessary pain that Abraham could have avoided, that he, he could have spared his family if he would have taken time to seek God's direction before he went down to Egypt. Now, I say that, but what I don't want any of you to, to think to yourselves is that if I'm trusting God, then I won't experience fear. That is a huge myth that people often believe in the church. If, if I feel fear, I've automatically failed. And that's, that's exactly wrong. Godly men and women, they're not ones who never experience fear. It's the ones who respond in faith when they feel afraid. Think of Jesus' example for us that he left in the garden. There's a very real sense in which he was tempted, you know, in fear, not to go to the cross. There, there was a, a temptation to, to let fear keep him from obeying the Father. And yet he trusted. He, he said, not my will, but your will be done. And that reminds me of, of one of my favorite definitions, my favorite definition of courage. And that is that it is crucified fear. Courage is crucified fear. See, if you're going to follow Christ, it's going to be hard. And there are going to be a lot of things that make you feel afraid and a lot of situations that make you feel uncomfortable and a lot of things that God calls you to that will be very difficult. And you are going to feel fear, the temptation to fear, for the rest of your life as a believer. You will. And so we have to learn how to respond to it. We have to learn how to respond to it with faith. Are you learning to crucify your fear by trusting the promises of God more than your own emotions? So when, when you think about your finances, are you willing to, to trust God there? Are you willing to trust Him and, and you show that by being generous to others as they have need? When you think about outreach, are, are you willing to, to step out of your comfort zone and ask a spiritual question to a neighbor or a coworker, or invite them to church. When there's, when there's relational tension, are you willing to, to enter the danger? Are you willing to, to step in and try and reconcile a relationship with a brother or sister that, that has somehow gotten off? Or maybe with someone who has, has disappointed you or hurt you, instead of just abandoning it, allowing there to be a, a breach in the unity that God desires. All over the place, all across the board, there's going to be places where we're tempted to disobey God because of fear. But as we keep our eyes on Christ, if we don't let fear drive us, what happens is that we put ourselves in a position to experience his ability to fulfill his promises in new and greater ways. And so what I want you to see is that moments of fear, they're actually opportunities to grow and exercise faith. You haven't failed when you feel afraid. That is the opportunity to trust God. That is the opportunity for your faith to grow. Now, that, that is an exciting truth to me, but this passage reminds us of an even more fundamental truth, and that is our faith needs to be based on God's faithfulness. We must base our faith ultimately on God's faithfulness. You see, if our hope before God or our hope in ministry is based on how faithful we have been to him, <laughs> it's not, it's not going to be long before we face plant in our own way and fail to, fail to trust and honor God. And if we believe that our past sins or current struggles disqualify us from being used by God, 
then we're never going to step out boldly in gospel ministry. The, the point here is if your faith is in your own faithfulness, you're in big trouble. <laughs> you're in big, in big trouble. But if we realize and refresh ourselves regularly with the truth that God is always faithful to his promises, if we do that, I think we're, we're going to find energy. We're going to find hope. We're going to find courage, even when we drop the ball, even when we fail to, to obey and trust God the way that we desire. I was struck reading this passage, thinking about how Moses' first audience would have responded to this. Moses was writing to the Israelites, probably as they were wandering in the wilderness, because of their rebellion to God, because of their disobedience to him. And this section is one of many things that Moses wrote to prove to them God is still going to be faithful. God is not done with you. God is still going to fulfill his promises to Abraham. He's going to bring you as a nation into the promised land. Now, all of us here, we, we need, all of us as believers, we need to, to understand the dangers of fear. But especially those of you who you struggle with sin from the past, big failures in the past, or maybe recently you really have, have given in to sin, all of us need to understand that that where our faith ultimately rests is not in our performance, it's not in our faithfulness, but it's, it's in Jesus Christ and his faithfulness towards us. And if you hold on to that, even when you trip, even when you fall, like Abraham and like all the saints before us, you'll be able to get up and continue to walk with God in joy. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how incredibly relevant it is to every area of our life. God, I, I pray that you would help us to learn how to, to respond to fear in a way that honors you. I pray that we'd be making progress and, and we'd be more and more fear from the, the influence of, of fear in our lives. And God, I pray that even when we fail, even when we blow it, Lord, I, I pray that we'd have a deeper and deeper, just rock-solid conviction that you will always be faithful to us, that your love for us your faithfulness to us, it's based on your character. It's based on your work and what you've done, not on our own. And so, Lord, help us to, to grow in just our excitement of walking with you. Help us to, to trust you and, and God, to worship you with, with more and more of our life. Thank you that you're worthy of that, and thank you for this time in your word together. Amen.